Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I had an interesting conversation the other day with a friend of mine. He was experiencing some back pain, and he knew that I used to work in a bar that had a beer that was infused with CBD, and I had rather enjoyed that, although not for its medicinal purposes. Anyway, he had some questions about CBD, and although I'm not a medical professional, I did my best to answer them. So I thought I'd tell you what I told him. Look, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution to every problem. It's not going to be a panacea. But if you're interested, then why don't you CBD's nuts and tell them 10-4, good buddies, breaker, breaker, over and out. You see, because CB is a type of radio that truckers use to communicate with each other. And D's nuts is another way of saying these testicles. So in essence, I was suggesting that he radio my testicles on a shortwave radio. Which is a silly thing to do. Yeah, he didn't think it was funny either. Anyway, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's... Uh do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tui. To avoid crime in fiction, steer clear of the circus. To avoid years-old spoilers, steer clear of synopsis. Thanks, Devin. Batman, number 441, November 1989. A Lonely Place of Dying, Chapter 3. Parallel Lives. Written by Marf Wolfman. Drotted by Jim Aparo. Inkted by Mike DiCarlo. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by Dan Raspler and Denny O'Neill. New Titan Roll Call. Nightwing. Tim Drake, who isn't a Titan now, but will eventually join a team called the Teen Titans. Also, Batman is there, who, to the best of my knowledge, has never been a Titan, but someone who was a Titan does become Batman for a while, so maybe that counts. Previously in Batman. Ever since the death of his young protege, Jason Todd, a.k.a. the second Robin, at the hands of the Joker, Batman, a.k.a. Bruce Wayne, has been kind of losing his shit and taking a lot of unnecessary risks. To make matters worse, in recent weeks, Gotham City has been plagued by a series of vicious crimes, all of which seem to involve the number two in some way. As Batman raced around the city hurling himself into dangerous situations to combat this crime spree, the caped crusader was being surreptitiously stalked by two separate strangers. The first stranger was a teenage boy who had somehow figured out Batman's secret identity and was worried about the billionaire-do-well bat enthusiast's recent behavior. After photographing Batman fighting a mercenary murderer named The Ravager, who was in no way related to the four other characters Marv Wolfman has named The Ravager, 
the civic-minded young stranger went off in search of Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Nightwing, to see if the acrobatic adventurer could lend his former mentor a hand. Unable to track down Dick at the Titan Tower or Starfire's apartment, the young stranger rifled through the desk at Dick's bachelor pad, looking for clues as to the former Robin's whereabouts. Meanwhile, a battered Batman had his wounds tended by his long-suffering butler-slash-father figure, Alfred Pennyworth. While treating his employer's wounds, Alfred told Bruce that he had been fucking up a lot lately and was going to get himself killed if he kept it up. Bruce resented being lectured and stormed off to go fight some more crime. Meanwhile, the second, more sinister stranger had been setting a trap for Batman, which forced him to fight two armed thugs in a warehouse on 22nd Street, which was owned by twins, at 2 a.m. During the fight, Batman seemed to internalize Alfred's message that he hadn't been thinking things through lately. He also realized that the architect behind Gotham's crime wave was probably his old enemy, Harvey Dent, a.k.a. Two-Face, the disfigured do-batter who was obsessed with dualism. In a nearby hideout, the sinister second stranger removed his trench coat and fedora, confirming Batman's suspicions and revealing to the readers that he was, in fact, Harvey Dent. You don't say. Previously in The New Titans. Dick Grayson was worried about Batman. He took a leave of absence from the Titans, leaving Cyborg in charge, so that he could head back to Wayne Manor and keep an eye on Bruce. Then he got distracted and went to the circus instead. It turned out that the circus Dick had grown up performing in had fallen on hard times, so he decided to head out to the fairgrounds and poke around. Soon after he arrived, there was a murder, because, come on, it's the circus, of course there was a murder. Dick quickly solved the crime, and then purchased the circus. During the course of the investigation, the kid who had been stalking Batman and taking pictures caught up to Dick, and told him to go back to Gotham and help out his surrogate Bat-Dad. Dick was taken aback that the determined youngster had figured out his secret identity, but was impressed with his persistence. He hopped in his car and plotted a course for Wayne Manor, taking the intrepid young photographer with him. Gadzooks! Just who is this mysterious teenager? What sinister scheme will Two-Face hatch to try to kill the caped crusader? And what tactic will Batman employ in his attempt to capture Two-Face? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Tim Drake, I thought that was clear from the New Titans roll call. He sets a needlessly complicated trap that involves the number two in several implausible ways. And he sets a needlessly complicated trap that involves the number two in several implausible ways. Two-Face sits in his secret hideout and broods over how obsessed he is with the Batman. Batman sits on a rooftop and broods about how obsessed he is with Two-Face. Two-Face brainstorms about improbable crimes he could commit that involve the number two so that he can lure Batman out into the open. He comes up with quite a list, but discards each option as being either too silly or not silly enough. Batman brainstorms about improbable crimes Two-Face might commit that involve the number two, so that he can trap Two-Face when he strikes next. He comes up with quite a list, but discards each option as either being too silly or not silly enough. Hmm. You know, I'm not the world's greatest detective, but I'm starting to sense a trend here. It's almost like the comic is trying to tell us that 
Batman and Two-Face are like opposite sides of the same, I don't know, something. Pencil? Yeah, that's probably it. Because Batman's ears are pointy like the pointy end of a pencil, and Two-Face wants to erase everything that Batman has done in terms of his crime fighting. Yeah, like opposite sides of the same pencil, those two. Suddenly, both Batman and his two-toned counterpart arrive at simultaneous epiphanies about how to best trap one another and rush off to make their respective preparations. Meanwhile, Dick and the intrusive young stranger from the past couple of issues are arriving at stately Wayne Manor. Alfred greets them at the door and is like, Master Dick, good to see you. And who is this child? Dick is like, I found him at the circus. Alfred is like, I see. And I presume there was a murder? Dick is like, yeah, of course there was. I said it was the circus, didn't I? Alfred is like, very good, sir. And does this child have a name? The kid pipes up and is like, I'm Tim, and I'm not a child. I'm 13. And you're Alfred Pennyworth, aren't you? Bruce Wayne's long-suffering butler and confidant who is one of the only people who knows that he is secretly Batman. Neato! Alfred is like, Um, uh, oh, that is, uh... Tim keeps fanboying it up about how many of Batman's secrets he knows and how excited he is to be in Wayne Manor. When he starts talking about the recent death of Jason Todd, Dick cuts him off and is like, Okay, kid, what did you say your name was again? Tim is like, Tim, Tim Drake. Dick is like, Well, listen up, Jeff. You said you were going to tell me how you know all about our secrets when we got here, so make with the exposition dump already. Tim is like, Okay, here's the deal. You probably don't remember this, but we met once before back when I was a little kid. It was before your parents died. Dick is like, Wa-huh? Tim is like, Yup, it was on the day your parents were killed right in front of your eyes. Oops, I hope that's not a sore subject. Dick is like, No, it's okay. I grew up in the circus. You kind of get used to witnessing murders after a little while. Tim is like, Well... I was somewhere between the ages of three and ten. Comic book chronology is a little weird, and the artists are inconsistent when they draw flashbacks. Dick is like, yeah, tell me about it. Tim continues, my folks took me to the circus. I guess my dad figured I was going to have to witness a murder sooner or later, so might as well get it out of the way. Mom was worried that I might be scared, so they decided that the best way to put me at ease was to pass me around to be held by various circus employees. After all, who could be more trustworthy than itinerant entertainers and random carnival workers? I met you and your family and was totally starstruck. I thought your red and green circus costume with a yellow cape was so cool. I had my picture taken with you, and you said that you were going to dedicate your trapeze performance that night to me. It was the most memorable day of my whole life. Dick is like, uh, yeah, pretty memorable for me, too. Tim is like, Oh, right, on account of your parents being murdered. Sorry. While Tim is taking Dick for this little stroll down formatively traumatic memory lane, Batman and Two-Face are congratulating themselves about their respective clever schemes which they have set in motion. 
Then Two-Face hears on the radio that a place called Club Gemini is holding a poker tournament with a $22 million prize. The bifurcated baddie is like, Oh shit! I want to rob that place so bad! Only I can't. I have to stay here with these twin child actors I kidnapped so that I can kill Batman when he tries to rescue them. Shit! This sucks! When Batman hears on the radio that the famous Wright twins have been kidnapped, he's like, Fuck, I bet Two-Face took them. I really want to rescue those kids, but I sold my pocket watch to buy Harvey these combs. I mean, I have to stay here and guard this $22 million in prize money that I placed at the Gemini Club as a trap. Shit, this sucks. Back at Wayne Manor, Tim is continuing his exposition dump. He's like, now where was I? Oh, right, your parents dying. So, yeah, they started their trapeze act, but then their rope snapped and they plummeted to their deaths. That sucked. You were holding their lifeless bodies and crying, but then Batman swooped down from the rafters and tried to comfort you. At first, I was all scared of him, but then it seemed like he was nice, so I decided he was the greatest. I had nightmares for a while about that night. I couldn't get your family's trapeze act out of my mind. Then one day, I was watching a news report about Batman and Robin fighting the Penguin, and Robin did a quadruple somersault. That's when everything kind of fell into place for me. Robin's outfit looked a lot like your circus outfit. He had the same moves as you, and looked just like you. I had read about Bruce Wayne's adopting you right after your parents' death, so if you were Robin, then Bruce Wayne must be Batman. Dick is like, so just because Robin looked exactly like me, dressed like me, moved like me, and appeared on the scene almost immediately after my parents died and Batman showed an interest in me, you were able to figure out that he was me? Wow. And I thought Batman was the world's greatest detective. Tim continues. Anyway, then I started keeping all of the news clippings about you guys and learned everything I could about you. I saw that pretty soon after you moved out and became Nightwing, Bruce Wayne took in another orphan named Jason Todd, and that right after that, a new Robin who looked different and moved differently showed up. I figured Jason must be the new Robin. Dick is like, And you weren't fooled by the tiny mask that covers a one-inch radius around each eyeball? Amazing! This is like watching Picasso paint. Tim is like, I read in the paper that Jason died, and then Robin stopped showing up, so I knew something was wrong. Ever since then, Batman's been acting like an out-of-control asshole. Dick and Alfred exchange a knowing look, and Dick is like, Yeah, since then. Tim is like, Anyway, that's why I came here and found you. When you were his teenage sidekick, Batman was happier and better at fighting crime and stuff, so I figured you need to go back to being Robin, and then everything will be better. As Tim is advocating for Dick to regress to his teenage years to placate his father figure, Two-Face is finally succumbing to the siren song of Batman's trap. Hooray! Or not so hooray because just as Two-Face is heading to the Gemini Club to steal the $22 million, Batman is leaving his stake out of the Gemini Club to go rescue the twins that Two-Face has kidnapped. Man, this scenario just went from caper to farce. Throw in a servant emboldened by strong drink and it might as well be written by Moliere. Batman shows up at the crime scene. Commissioner Gordon is already there. Gordon is like, Welp, 
The only clue we have is that the kidnapper wrote the number 2 followed by the letter B and then two letter C's under that. Any idea what that means? Batman is like, yup. Through a chain of nonsensical dream logic, I can instantly tell that Harvey has taken the twins to the Hawk Bridge and probably tied them to the bridge tower. Commissioner Gordon is like, what the fuck are you talking about? But by the time he turns around, Batman has already done his patented version of an Irish goodbye and snuck out the window. He arrives at the bridge and finds his nonsense deductions were as astute as ever. The twins are tied to the bridge tower with a little note taped to their chest that says, Property of Harvey Dent. Please do not rescue until I get back from robbing the casino. Okay, technically they have a grenade taped to them, but honestly, a note might have been more effective. Batman easily disposes of the grenade, then plops the kids down by the side of the bridge and is like, Sorry about the trauma. I'm going to go after Two-Face now. Try not to get kidnapped again until the police get here. Then he zooms off in the Batmobile. While Batman is rescuing the twins from Harvey's abandoned trap, Harvey is stealing the money from Batman's abandoned trap. Well, sort of. See, Harvey uses some sleep gas to knock out all the partygoers and security guards at the Gemini Club and blows open the doors of the vault containing the $22 million. But then he flips a coin to see if he'll take the money or just go home. It comes up tails, so he just goes home. Look, I'm as big a fan of committing to the bit as the next guy, but at some point you have got to draw the line. I mean, just think how many two-toned helicopters and mismatched pairs of shoes you could buy with $22 million. Come on, Harvey. Back at Wayne Manor, Dick and Alfred take Tim down to the Batcave. As Tim geeks out over the giant penny and life-size dinosaur statue and stuff, Dick is like, look, you seem like a nice kid and all, and I am incredibly impressed that you were somehow able to see through the vague pretense of secret identity maintenance that Bruce and I do but there is no way I am going back to being Robin. I put that shit behind me years ago. Or at least months ago. Almost certainly more than weeks ago. Like you said, comic book time is a little weird. But the point is, I'm Nightwing now, and Nightwing is a grown-up. Here, I'll prove it. You can't go home again. That's a Thomas Wolfe quote. Is pretentiously quoting a literary figure as part of an argument something a teenager would do? Alfred nods his head so vigorously that he nearly gives himself whiplash, but Tim and Dick don't seem to notice. Tim is like, but you have to go back to being Robin again. Batman needs Robin. Dick is like, nope, but I'll lend him a hand as Nightwing. Dick changes into his Nightwing duds and drives off on his motorcycle. Alfred is like, cheer up, Master Tim. At least you got Dick and Bruce to team up again. That's something. Tim is like, yeah, but I wanted there to be a Robin again. Alfred is like, Well, maybe Master Dick brought you down here for a reason. He nods significantly towards the Robin costume that is in a glass display case in memoriam of Jason Todd. Tim is like, Me? How could I fight crime? My parents are still alive. Alfred is like, Oh, they are? Well then, never mind. Meanwhile, Batman sits on a rooftop gargoyle and broods. He's like, Man, I fucked up. I let Two-Face get away. Harvey Dent sits in his hideout and broods. He's like, man, I fucked up. I let Batman get away. Batman is like, 
I've been fucking up a lot since Jason died. I need to accept the fact that I can't always do everything by myself. Harvey Dent is like, Why in the hell did I leave all that money in the vault? $22 million is so much money, especially in 1989. I could have just taken the money, then flipped a coin to decide where to go to dinner. Man, it's like I said, opposite sides of the same pencil. To be continued. And my good-for-many-things brother, Corey, is off refamiliarizing himself with his roots at the circus. He may or may not have been hypnotized by an albino baboon. Really, there's no way to tell. I, you have to assume that he has been, seeing as he's at the circus. But fortunately, in his stead, we are joined by Matt Lazowitz. Matt is a writer and editor at Comics XF and the co-host of not one, but two weekly comic book podcasts, WMQ&A, a creator interview podcast, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a podcast that will eventually rank every Batman story in a purely unscientific and personal manner. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Hub. First time, long time. Yeah, we have been corresponding for a little while now, and... We had been talking about this upcoming book, so when we actually got to it, I thought it would be great to have you fill in for Corey and give us some background information on Batman, a character who, despite a life of reading comics, I am surprisingly not that familiar with. Well, fortunately, you have me, and I am ridiculously familiar with Batman comics. Excellent. So why don't you give us a little bit of your history with the character of Batman, and if you can, let me know what you think makes him a special character. Well, the first comic I ever remember reading, and this is, I guess, comic for a certain value of comic, was Who's Who in the DC Universe number two. Mm. My uncles would buy me comics, and I might have gotten others before that, but that's the one I remember. And that is, as you might imagine, being as the second issue, mostly characters whose names begin with the letter B. Mm. So five-year-old Matt is reading Batman, Batman of Earth 2, Batgirl, Batgirl, Batwoman, Batman's utility belt, the Batmobile, the Batcave, <laughs> as well as, uh, I believe the first character there is uh, Azrael, better known as Zach Wingman. Oh, wow. And that is how I know that character from that who's who. It's funny. So you ended up fixating on Batman the same way that Corey and I, we both inherited from a cousin an issue of Who's Who in the DCU that was the letter F. And so we both grew up thinking that Pharaoh Lad was a much more important character than apparently he really is. Oh, poor Pharaoh Lad, the first of the late departed Legionnaires. Mm. But from there... You know, Batman 66 reruns hmm. were a thing. And, you know, again, I'd get the occasional comic, and it was always the Batman ones I would focus on. And then Batman 89 happened. Yeah, and that would be around the time that this book came out, right? Yep. I was a little young. I mean, it was a PG-13 movie, but my parents let me go and see it at the age of nine. Hmm. And January of 1990, I think it was, I went to the comic shop, and I got... The first issue that I bought for myself, which was only a few issues after this, Batman 445. 
And God help me, I have not missed an issue of Batman since. Oh, wow. That's really impressive. Well, you know, I completely understand. You know, college and things, people drift away. I worked in a comic shop through college. There you go. So that kept me in the hobby. It's interesting because through a lot of the media you mentioned, Batman was certainly a character that I was familiar with from a very young age through watching Super Friends or reruns of the Batman 66 show at a friend's house. But I think maybe the ubiquity of the character was something that made me feel like when I did get into comics, he wasn't a character I needed to explore as much. Like, Batman was so clearly the guy in the DC universe that it never felt to me like he needed to be my guy. You you know what I mean? Yeah, I can absolutely see that. For me, I was fascinated by this, you know, the creature of the night, the detectiveness of it. The Mm. detectiveness was a big thing for me. One of the things that I also loved at a young age was Sherlock Holmes. So detective stories were something I've always loved. And so you get the superhero, you get the detective. No matter what anybody says, no, not everybody can be Batman. (laughs) You need to start at the age of eight. You need to have dead parents and a butt ton of money. Mm. And I don't necessarily want any of those things. (laughs) That's very mature of you. (laughs) I like that my parents are still alive and I would feel very guilty about having that much money. Tough but fair. Eat the rich. So you are on a podcast, Bat Chat, where you are going through and ranking all of the Batman stories eventually? Yeah, I mean, we are not at all inspired by a similar podcast also on Comics XF, Battle of the Atom, that is doing that with X-Men stories. No, just a purely coincidental, right? Pure coincidental. But Will Nevin, my partner in podcasting on that show, we were introduced by... Dan Grote, who's my co-host on WMQ&A and my best friend of, it'll be 30 years come next year. I'd wanted to do a Batman podcast and I couldn't quite find my angle on it. Mm. And then started working Comics XF and listened to Battle of the Atom. And it was like, there aren't many comic book characters or franchises that could support that level of dive. The Mm -hmm. X-Men are one of them, but so is Batman, because there's so many stories from so many titles for so many years, and they're so different. Your Bob Haney Batman is not the same as your Denny O'Neill Neil Adams Batman is different than your recent Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo Batman. But Mm -hmm. there's something mostly recognizable at the core of each of those takes. Oh, absolutely. And... Batman is also a character where, like I said, it was not a character that I particularly gravitated to as a comic book character, but I mentioned this to Elan Eleven when we recorded a couple of weeks ago. Whether you realize it or not, if you're reading comics, you end up reading Batman comics. He's like sugar or racism. He's just in everything, whether you realize it or not. So I have over the years ended up reading a fair amount of Batman comics through his appearances, mostly in the Justice League or in the Brave and the Bold, where he teams up with other characters or World's Finest or stuff like that. So I do definitely have a sort of background familiarity with the character, because if you're reading any DC comics, he's just there. He's a part of the architecture of that universe. Completely. And the fact that he exists in the cultural zeitgeist Oh boy, that doesn't sound pretentious at all. You can't escape the knowledge of 
your basic Batman, Robin, and the core rogues of Batman. They are infinitely recognizable characters. So, as you've mentioned, you've read a lot of Batman comics. And, you know, without giving any spoilers for your own show, where would you say this story, not just this issue necessarily, but this storyline, ranks among Batman comics? Like, just ballpark area. Ballpark area. I mean, of course, as it is the two of us who must negotiate this, I can only give you what my placement would be. There are stories on that list that have wound up higher or lower than I would put them because Will and I have to, you know, horse trade on these. Right. This is a top half book. How high in the top half, I'm not sure. For me, there's also a bias because it is the introduction of Tim Drake. Tim Drake, who is my Robin. Batman might be my favorite character, but Tim is coming up real close (laughs) there as number two. That is perfectly understandable. Tim Drake is a character who I have always liked a lot. The book that brought me into kind of the Batman side of comics, at least briefly, was the Robin miniseries of the early 90s. Oddly, the comic that got me out of comics in general for at least a year or so was Robin 2, the follow-up miniseries, just because it was the early 90s and they were doing weird things with comics. DC less so than Marvel, but they did five different covers of each issue and each one had a hologram on it and they weren't good holograms either. They were little like trading cards that were pasted to the cover. And for the first issue, I was like, oh, this is fun. This is kind of exciting. And I got all five of them. And then the second issue came out and I was like, wait, there's five more. And something in my teenage brain just kind of snapped and was just like, nah, you know what? Fuck this shit. Oh, the 90s in gimmick covers. Well, and DC was a little bit behind on that trend because they were actually trying to make money by selling comic books, which Marvel at the time, with all of the really interesting and frankly really cool-looking covers that they were putting out, they were losing money on those comic books. They were costing more to print than they were to sell because they were trying to artificially inflate their sales rates for, I don't know, stock market reasons. They had been bought out by a corporate raider and there was this whole thing going on, which I don't completely understand my general understanding of capitalism is just a flowchart that has circles for oppression racism profit question mark and uh then just me scratching my head but um i know that dc was like well i guess we better try to compete with marvel and they did not as good a job but also were trying to make money which put them at a disadvantage yeah there are not as many memorable crazy variants from dc there's that death of superman in the black bag that Mm -hmm. one big old gatefold cover on batman 500 the end of nightfall i could go on but i'm not going to because (laughs) i have a nearly photographic memory and i've read a lot of comics (laughs) fair enough so what i liked about tim drake as robin was he felt like he made more sense as a batman sidekick because he did focus on the more detective side of things which is less disturbing than, like, throwing a nine-year-old into the octagon with Killer Croc or whoever. And I thought that was cool, and I liked his costume. There was a redesign of his costume. I think Neil Adams did it. He did indeed. And it looked cool. He got pants, finally. And he was a 
point of entry character for readers. He was about the same age as me, I think a little bit older, in a way that made sense because he was like a Batman fan who also had some modicum of common sense, which is the most unique of superpowers in a comic book universe. And I appreciated that. Now, you started picking up Batman comics pretty soon after the debut of Tim Drake. So did you always like him that much as a character or did he take some adjusting for you? Once I got used to the fact that Dick Grayson wasn't Robin, because that was something that coming in from 66 and the Super Friends and things like that, it was like, oh, this is a different guy. It was pretty quick. By the time he got the new costume and officially became Robin, which was 455 to 457, I believe, we, we ranked that story not too long ago. So I, I reread that one recently. By then it was like, okay, I'm in on this kid. Because they, they had done an arc shortly before that where Batman was off doing something else and Tim wasn't Robin yet. And so he had to basically do, it was a detective story where there was a hacker and Tim was investigating the hacker and, and it turned out to be fairly C-list Batman villain Anarchy, who was a teenage villain. Who dressed, if memory serves, I, I have some peripheral memory of this. He dressed kind of like the V for Vendetta guy, right? Yeah. And Anarchy became one of Tim's rogues more than Bruce's after that. Oh, that's nice. He would pop up in those the Dixon ongoing more than once because he was sort of an opposite number. He was the brilliant kid who's good with computers and stuff who was using his powers to try to bring down the system, which, again, not necessarily the wrong idea. He was just going about it in the wrong way. So now that we've kind of got your background on the characters that are involved in this, let's talk about this comic. Matt, what do you think of this comic book? I like this comic book a lot. I was excited when you pick this one of the three parts because this is the origin of Tim Drake which is a really good origin and really fits what Tim would become you hit the notes this is Tim is the detective and Tim is the Batman fan and you get both of them right here I also and I'm sure we'll get into this later the style of so much of this book the Batman and Two-Face stuff Mm -hmm. is really cool and not something I would expect from Wolfman and Aparo. They're both creators who are solid, really good creators, but this is stylized in a way that isn't something that jumps into my head that is something you'd get out of Wolfman or Aparo. Now, they set something up in this comic that I think you touched on just now, and it's very, very subtle. But they seem to be possibly hinting at the idea that, well, to coin a phrase, Batman and Two-Face might be two sides of a coin? Coin metaphor in a Two-Face story? <laughs> I would never have expected that. Well, they really, really drive that point home. And in some ways, they do it really well. In other ways, it is a little bit ham-fisted. But I also kept being struck by the thought, okay, it doesn't quite work, because Two-Face is already two sides of the same coin, and Batman is two sides of the same coin with Batman and Bruce Wayne. So really, the metaphor they're setting up is that they are four sides of two dissimilar coins. And that is a much clunkier metaphor. 
a four-sided die? The, the weird little pyramid one that you use for spells in D&D, I guess? Yeah, so, like, I guess Batman would be one and three, and Two-Face would be two and four, except for then he gets both even numbers, so that doesn't seem fair. So I guess Batman would maybe be one and four? As long as Two-Face gets two, I think he's probably okay. Man, he sure does like that number. And maybe it is his obsession with the number two that is the reason why all of his plans seem to be total shit. We've hit a couple of Two-Face stories on Bat Chat, and I promise to not spend too much time talking about other Batman stories. It's just force of habit because you get me going on Batman stories and I just go. Mm -hmm. But there's one where Two-Face sort of comes back into comics after being gone for... 15 or 20 years because he was a golden age character who because of just how grotesque he is disappears throughout the silver age mm-hmm. and comes back again in a denny o'neill neil adams story called half and evil and this is a story where there's this insanely elaborate plan to wind up stealing this spanish galleon that was docked in gotham just so he could break open not even the masthead, like something on the ship, and get a bunch of gold doubloons that were hidden in there. We did that story 20 episodes ago, but now every time we mention Two-Face, Will is like, Harvey, just got to remember, smash and grab, smash (laughs) and grab. Well, seriously, the whole end of the story is he flips the coin and then walks away from $22 million. Wow. You you almost have to respect that on a certain level if it wasn't just so goddamn stupid. Commitment to a bit. Yeah. So if we were to go with the fact that Batman and Harvey Dent are two sides of the same coin, and they are arch enemies, that got me thinking, which actual coins could be viewed as having arch enemies on opposite sides? So I got a list, and I thought we could maybe debate some potential matchups here and see which of these four sets makes the best arch enemies. Because some of them seem like a decent matchup, but I don't know why they'd fight necessarily. Some of them would be kind of a one-sided battle. The quarter. You got George Washington on one side, an eagle with a fistful of arrows on the other side. How do you think they match up, and why would they fight? Is the eagle an abolitionist? Uh, or British? Well, hmm. I wonder if Washington might have sided with Ben Franklin in the old debate about what the national bird of the U.S. was. Sure, sure. He wants to go with the turkey. Turkey. As an adopted Philadelphian, I have to somewhat go with Ben Franklin. I I live, like, you can see Philadelphia from my house, despite Mm. being Jersey born and bred. I I have to appreciate Philadelphia and its sheer pig-headed insistence on being Philadelphia. Okay, fair enough. And honestly, a bird doesn't really need a reason to fight anyone. So I think that's an okay rivalry. Then we get the 1970s silver dollar. You get Dwight D. Eisenhower on one side and the moon on the other side. How do you think Dwight D. Eisenhower versus the moon sets up as a rivalry? Well, Eisenhower warned against the military-industrial complex. Sure. And to get to the moon, that really depended on Project Paperclip, which is... Oh, Nazis, yeah. Yeah, big on the military-industrial complex there. 
Okay. So, so I, I think that, although that might be more Eisenhower versus space travel than Eisenhower versus the moon. Either way, I don't think Eisenhower stands a great chance against the moon, especially once he has, to a certain extent, alienated the military industrial complex. So I don't think that one's going to pan out as a rivalry that well. You get the penny. And I'm talking about the penny until a few years ago when they changed it and put the uh, original Captain America shield on the back. If you go with that one, maybe Abraham Lincoln prefers the round shield that we've come to know as Captain America's shield. Either way, that's not a great rivalry necessarily. But if you go a few years back, you get Abraham Lincoln on one side and the Lincoln Memorial on the other side. It's man versus his own mortality. That is one of the classic stories. It's basically Abraham Lincoln versus a middle finger that says, fuck you, Abe, you're going to die. Again, kind of a one-sided battle, but you can see why those two would not get along. Oh, and Lincoln famously, I don't know if this is true or not. There might be an apocryphal tale that he, you know, had prophetic dreams of his own eventual passing. So, you know, he was conscious of his own mortality all along. So maybe, yeah, I could see him being, you know, firmly set against that. Sure. I mean, I think it would be maybe more appropriate if the back of the coin then in that case had like a uh, comedy tragedy mask, like the uh, Motley Crue Theater of Pain cover, where, where it's like Lincoln versus either Motley Crue, which would be a pretty good fight, I think. Lincoln's wiry. Those guys were often drunk. There's four of them, though. Or Lincoln's love of theater going. Now we get to what I think is maybe my favorite choice in these, and perhaps the obvious a rivalry and maybe the best fight. Queen Elizabeth versus a loon. You get the Canadian loony. Now, loon is not a very big bird, not a particularly ferocious bird. I mean, it's pretty good sized. But Queen Elizabeth is a very old woman. And as I said earlier, birds don't really need a reason to fight anyone, and neither, to the best of my knowledge of history, does the monarchy. So uh, I think that's a pretty good fight. I think that might be the best uh, opposite sides of the same coin rivalry that we have going. Definitely. The only way it could become lopsided is if Elizabeth is allowed to have her corgis. Oh, but no corgis on the coin, so I think we have to go with the text and not with an interpretation thereof. Tough but fair. Those dogs are pretty cute, though. We talked about where you think this story in general ranks in the pantheon of Batman comics. I myself sometimes have difficulty, and this issue frankly was no exception, with the pacing of Marv Wolfman multi-part story arcs. Where would you say that this issue ranks in the five-issue crossover, A Lonely Place of Dying? This is an exposition-heavy issue. Mm -hmm. I like this issue a lot for that Tim Drake origin bit. It has more to do with the crossover than the previous issue did. Right. As fun as that circus story is, it doesn't have a lot to do with Lonely Place of Dying as an arc. I like the last part a lot. This is probably probably four of five. I read along with the podcast, and I while I've read these multiple times, I haven't read them in a while, 
So I'm trying to remember part four, and it, it's not coming to me as quickly, but it's probably five, one, then either three or four, and two at the end. Not because of quality, but because of what it has to do with the actual event. This is a comic book that the more time I spent with it taking notes and stuff, the better I liked it. For me, so far with the comics in this series, and I haven't read the end of this run yet, but for me, they are ranked in chronological order. The first part really blew me away, and I thought was really great. The second one, I was a little bit wishing that it connected more to the story, but it was an engaging enough one-off story that it still worked for me. And then with this one, initially when I started reading it, I was really disappointed by it. As I said, the more time I spent with it, the better I ended up liking it. But it took me a little bit to get there. For me in ranking, so much of what I try to do with ranking is take into account more than just what I like. Because, boy, howdy, there are some stories that would be much higher on my list if they were just, I like this story a lot, versus what does something represent in an overall oeuvre. Right. I'm just using all the $3 words today, ain't I? <laughs> no, I get what you mean, though. And I am looking at these without context, except in as much as I was coming into it kind of guarded because so many of the stories that we've covered lately have had really strong opens. And this was definitely no exception. I got really sucked in. I was taken aback by how good a pulpy noir the first issue of this arc was, and I loved the Jim Aparo art. And then each issue that we've read since then, it seems to not quite be fulfilling the promise that was set up. So we'll see how it comes back and maybe ties things together. But so many of the Wolfman stories that we've covered have opened really strong and then have fizzled out or repeated themselves unnecessarily in certain ways. And then when you get to the end of it, it's like, oh shit, here's where I need to get to. Everything happens all at once. Or eh, nothing happens, but we'll pick it up later, I think. And then they don't even do that. And so I'm very on guard against that happening here. And there were parts in this issue where it felt like it was heading in that direction. Another thing that I think hurt with the continuity of reading it is a technical thing. The printing process is so different between the Batman issues and the new Teen Titans issues. The Teen Titans issues are, they're $1.75 cover price, they're printed on fancier paper, and the Batman ones are the traditional newsprint and for a dollar cover price. And there are parts, and I think it especially comes out with the coloring and some of the line work, where that difference really shows up. The first issue of the Batman arc, it really worked for me, specifically the newsprint like it lent to the pulpy feel of it and it was a really dark and really detailed issue and i was really surprised at how much i liked it then we get the more colorful and better printed circus story and then when we go back to the batman i was expecting more of the pulpy darker feel to it and it did get there with the tim drake flashbacks but the opening page both with the coloring and a thicker line work that looked a little bit more cartoony with the two shot of Two-Face and Batman. It looked almost more like Ramona Freyden art than it did Jim Aparo art. And I love Ramona Freyden, but that's not who I want drawing a pulp noir comic book. The other thing is just with the coloring, 
they did a weird like like when you're shooting a film when they do day for night it looks like that in this all of the night scenes have this like seafoam green background that really detracts from what i think is supposed to be a gritty dark feel that the book is supposed to have i was not able to dig out my physicals i have the physicals but so i was reading this in digital i can see absolutely where you're coming from with the the feeling of a classic you know comic that feels like a comic book of that era and i i miss that and i miss having the letter page and stuff handy but Someday I'll have easy access to my entire collection again. Someday. But interesting when you talked about Frayden, looking at that first page and the gargoyle that Bruce is perched on. Yeah, it's not shot putting anymore. It's now just grinning its ass off like a clown. Yeah, it's like that is a odd choice of a gargoyle for a Batman comic. They should be shot putting or, you know, doing the thinker like Goliath from the Gargoyles animated series or something. No, instead, this guy's got, like, his head framed in his hands like he's doing the cherub, ain't I a little stinker thing. His tongue's sticking out, too. Yeah. That being said, I do think the art in this comic is very, very good. Just there are a few pages where it doesn't hold up as well or feel continuous with the previous issue. And unfortunately, the first page is one of them. And it, I think, got the book off a little bit on the wrong foot with me. I did end up liking this comic book a lot. There was definitely some goofiness in it that I appreciated, despite the darker nature of it. The back and forth that Two-Face and Batman had where it cuts back and forth between them, and we see their thought processes about the same, really. In the opening pages specifically, it did seem that was like just Marv Wolfman brainstorming. It's like, what makes a good Two-Face story? I don't fucking know. Um... Should it be this? No, that's a dumb idea. And realizing, oh, I can just write all of this downstream of consciousness and it'll just be Batman and Two-Face discarding my bad Two-Face story ideas. I thought that was kind of fun. And one of the things that grew on me in the issue really gets brought into focus towards the end of the book, the difference between Harvey Dent and Batman. I mean, there's the obvious one. Two-Face looks like a monster and kills people and flips a coin and you know, dresses like the bifurcated man. But I think more importantly, the distinction, despite their very similar mindsets, is that Batman seems to realize that what separates him from becoming Two-Face is that he has a community and a family that he depends on and that he doesn't do it alone. And I think that's kind of an interesting point of delineation, especially where so much of the Batman mythos almost is that he is like a lone warrior or whatever. And I think it works better when he is not that, when you see he relies on other people and has a sense of community. You're preaching to the choir on that point. I will stand firmly behind Batman is a leader of people and not just a leader, but someone who appreciates others and any argument of batman as the breeder of child soldiers doesn't get the point there's a first season episode of young justice where the justice league is having this debate about the team of young heroes 
And Wonder Woman is confronting Batman about this. And she says something, how old was Robin when you started? Nine? You want him to be like you. And he's like, no, I'm doing this so he doesn't become like me. I think that is a much more compelling Batman story to me than one that we often get. And I love the idea of it going in that direction. There are parts of this issue where it doesn't feel like it is going in that direction. And frankly, that idea of Robin and Batman being a healthier relationship, maybe, is not something that has been supported from the way that Marv Wolfman has written Dick Grayson. And so when you get that perspective, it is a little bit uncomfortable the extent to which Dick Grayson is like, no, let's uh, throw this kid into the Robin role. When we see that it is one that was damaging for him, he has a poor relationship with Batman at this point. And at this point in his development is like, no, this was a fucked up thing that Batman did. For him then to be like, well, the important thing is that Batman needs this, so let's throw another kid into the wood chipper, is almost what it feels like here. And Alfred going along with that, it's almost like a family dealing with like a, a narcissist parent, where it's just like, well, what does he need? And we will all pretend to be what he needs. And Tim is a proponent of that and wanting to join this family in that context and being like, hey, uh, your dad was happier when you were a teenager, so go be a teenager again. And to his credit, Dick is like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that and doesn't even really consider the idea of it. It's like, that's not how this works. But you're right. We need to... I don't know, simulate a scenario around him that will get the best out of him. So here you go, another kid. It felt pretty creepy, honestly. Especially after Jason. I mean, right. there's a kid who just died. Yeah. I almost wish Wolfman had done a little more here with using Two-Face as this villain. Because yes, it was Joker who killed Jason. But Two-Face killed Jason's father. Two-Face has a deep history with Jason Todd. I mm -hmm. don't remember if they bring that up even in the later parts of this story. But one of Jason's earliest tests, not, you know, Bruce testing him, but, you know, a test of his character was you know, what to do when he was confronted with the man who killed his father. And Jason doesn't go ultra-violent. And Jason chooses to do the right thing there. So I kind of wish... Wolfman had done a little more with Batman reckoning with a villain who had a very specific relationship with Jason Todd. Yeah, that would have made sense. There was another thing that I wish that this story had done. I, again, as I said, I did for the most part enjoy this story, especially as I spent more time with it and saw more of what I think it was trying to do. But part of Tim's origin that I thought they were heading in this direction, and I think it would have been more interesting and maybe a little bit less creepy from a different perspective is that Tim's, I don't know, parasocial relationship with Batman or his obsession with him, I think would have been much more understandable if it had gone in the direction that it looked like they were setting up, where when he saw him at the circus, he was afraid of him. It flips so suddenly to but then I saw that he was a good guy, and then I was just a big fan, and I found out everything I could about him. It would have been so much more compelling to me and made it seem more understandable from Tim's perspective and made his obsession seem less creepy 
if it had been, I was scared of him, I thought he was a murderer, so I had to find out everything that I could about him, and then once I did, I saw who he really was. I think that would have worked so much better, and it looked like they were going there, but they didn't, and it makes you like Tim a little bit less at the top. If he had been obsessed with Dick Grayson and been following Dick Grayson as Bruce Wayne's ward, and then when he made the connection that Dick was Robin, I can see where you're coming from. That click would have been the thing to make him realize, oh, Batman's helping him. Right. Something like that. It had the groundwork laid there, too, where, like, when his parents take him to the circus, they're like, no, the way you stop being afraid of something is to learn more about it. Here, I'm going to introduce you to some circus performers so you're not afraid of them, despite the fact that in a fictional universe, and maybe the real universe, you should 100% be afraid of circus performers all of the time. A fictional universe in general, and Gotham City in particular. (sighs) So many murders at the circus. The story arc before A Lonely Place of Dying was Batman Year 3, that did Dick Grayson's post-crisis origin and gave it detail. That Mm -hmm. flashback in this issue first appears in there. You see young Tim without a name and that whole scene in there. But what that means is this is year three, which means the Joker has been around for like a year and a half. (laughs) After that, why would you bring your circus to a city that is known for its homicidal clown killer? Well, and as a parent, why would you teach your children that they shouldn't be afraid of clowns? Generally speaking, you should be, and especially in Gotham frickin' City. The, I don't know, death trap of the Magi storyline with Batman and Two-Face planning parties for each other that they couldn't attend because they were too busy planning a party for each other was, I don't know, borderline kind of sweet? If you take out the kidnapping and attempted child murder part of it. Yeah, Harvey has some issues. Right. But honestly, his plan even was kind of cute. Like, the writing on the wall, the 2B over 2Cs, Batman's logic solving that, that was the kind of tortured, almost comedic logic that you would see from him solving a Riddler riddle in the Batman TV show. I'm just going to read it because I think that should be heard to be fully understood how goofy that shit is. Yeah. Oh, you read my mind. The the feature film where the two riddles answered were a Russian and a ballpoint banana. And the only conclusion is a Russian person is going to slip a banana peel and break their neck. Yes, chum. The only possible conclusion. Exactly. So, yeah, he sees on the wall of the children who have been kidnapped. The number two, the letter B, and then two letter C's. And he's like, to B over two C's, two C's, the Twin Rivers, and the only thing over them is the Hawk Bridge, as in Kitty Hawk, the perfect place to hide twins named Alan and Richard, the Wright Brothers. Dude, that's not detective work. That's like some Spalding Gray free association nonsense. Like... That is straight out of swimming to Cambodia. Well, I hadn't thought about it, but you are 
absolutely. I had not made the Spoldy Gray kick, but I can absolutely see where you're coming from there. Well, as a kid, I accidentally rented Swimming to Cambodia because I thought it was a stand-up comedy special. So I ended up watching a bunch of Spalding Gray shit when I was like 11. That is some formative madness. I love it. (laughs) Well, speaking of madness, are you ready to transition into the part of the show where we delve into the madness of Minutia? Absolutely. That was almost a transition. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Matt, what category do you feel like starting off with? Let's start with the timestamp, because, oh, doctor, is there a timestamp that I got in this book right out of the gate was it incredibly jarring for you to read it in a comic yes a little bit so i'm assuming that what you're going with is harvey dent having one of his discarded schemes being blowing up the twin towers yes yes Mm. that one wouldn't have made it past the initial world trade center bombing of 93 let alone 9-11 Well, it might have made it past that one, because are you a fan at all of the uh, hip-hop group The Coop? I'm aware. Are you aware that they had an album called Party Music, which was scheduled to be released on September 11th, which featured Boots Riley pressing a play button that was connected to some dynamite that was blowing up the Twin Towers? Oh, hell's bells. It it was, you know, months in advance, it was a anti- wall street message that they were trying to send and yeah that got them put on fbi watch lists for quite some time i mean they probably already were in that they were prominent communists but yeah so up until the actual world trade center bombing yeah you could get away with doing stuff like that but they definitely pulled that album and came out with a new cover for it yeah i I think September 12th, the issue of Adventures of Superman that came out. Again, the first few pages have skyscrapers nearly leveled because it was a a follow-up to a big alien invasion story. That was a weird book to be selling that day. I will tell you. I remember that because I was working in a comic book shop. Yeah, that was definitely a timestamp that I had noticed as well. The other one that I had is a, a little less specific and a little bit less severe but when tim drake first shows up in bruce wayne's stately wayne manor he is really struck by an urte statue that's there and he says that his dad has just bought a lithograph and art deco had a huge resurgence in the 80s i think in part because it was another time when the upper class was doing very, very well, and so a, a time of opulence for many. And uh, yeah, there was an Art Deco revival right then. So I, I thought that was kind of a timestamp, although certainly a less jarring one than having a villain scheme to blow up the Twin Towers. Yeah. And this would have been right, Urte passed the next year. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I looked that one up, I was like trying to figure out how time stampy that was. It's like, okay, Urte passed in 1990. So somewhat of a time stamp. Right. But, but there was like that, 
style of art and even like newer versions of it. Like you saw so many Nagel prints in the 80s and stuff like that, which was kind of like a a newer take on the art deco style. I just thought that was kind of a thing. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this comic did you find most worthy of note? Well, there weren't a ton of new characters that we hadn't haven't seen in recent stories in here. Mm-hmm. But an old favorite, it pops up for the first time in a, a Titans comic or a Batman comic in a little bit. We see good old Oswald Chesterfield Cobblepot, better known as the Penguin. Penguin's a dapper, dapper dude. He is, and it is his very retro look. Like, even at this point, I remember, I think, in conjunction with the Batman 1989 movie being released, Kenner, I think it was, put out a line of Batman action figures that was, I think, supposed to be in line with the movie. But they just went with older characters that had nothing to do with it, and they had this version of the Penguin in it. And trying to square the image of that penguin with the Danny DeVito penguin from like a year later was very, very difficult for my young mind. Yeah. Penguin has become this character where different artists interpret him so differently. And some try to find this middle ground between (laughs) the grotesque of the DeVito and the traditional dapper penguin. And no half measures. You gotta either go full-on grotesque or full-on, you know, mobster. It makes it so much worse if it is a kind of cute, nose-biting-off monster. Like, if you picture Burgess Meredith biting somebody's nose off with his dumb little monocle, that is so much scarier. Oh, God, I hadn't even... That, yes, that is a terrifying image. But yeah, I noted that fashion as well, and that panel may come up later on. Uh, Spoiler, it will. Also, we did mention it before, but Commissioner Gordon continues to be dressed in a very dapper, kind of Art Deco-inspired look, which I really, really like. We also have a bevy of turtlenecks in this issue. So many turtlenecks. Once again, Two-Face is wearing his business casual bifurcated suit with a turtleneck instead of a tie. I like it's a more relaxed look for him. And then you also see on the other end of the spectrum, you have Dick Grayson wearing his turtleneck with a leather jacket, which does strike me as a very 80s specific look. I can't think of another time you would see that particular combo. The other one that jumped out at me was uh, the Flying Grayson's outfits. They are these very proto-Robin outfits. The collars on the costumes, not so much, but the, the trunks, the bodysuits, there is a Robin-y sort of vibe to that, that you can see where Dick would have gotten some kind of inspiration when Batman was like, okay, you need a costume. Oh, absolutely, especially when you have Tim Drake, a young Tim Drake, describing the color combo as being yellow and black and red and green (laughs) like we can't really see that because the flashback is all sepia toned or else the circus was just you know permeated with cigarette smoke as it was uh, i think from the sliding time scale happening probably 1980 79 something like that when this is happening what no he's 13 so mid 70s i guess 
because it's his flashback. No, okay, probably he's at least three or four. Okay, so he's if he's four years old, then that would make this like 1981, I think, something like that. I don't know. I don't. I I just tricked myself into doing math. Why the fuck would I do that? Yeah, no. And especially tried to do comic book math that involves chronology. You, you, you know what? I'm going to pull up Missy Elliott here. and Okay. I didn't say any of those things now. But what you do get is that it is the Robin color scheme and a not dissimilar looking outfit. So it is kind of remarkable that nobody but Tim Drake made the connection between Robin and Dick Grayson. But that's comic books for you. did you have as your president of the drama club who acted or rather overacted in the most dramatic manner in this book so as you have said on previous episodes it's always batman's contest to lose in a president of the drama club however this time again i think he wound up losing out to his protege dick grayson because there's two particular moments one After Tim has talked about the death of his parents, you see Dick staring out into the middle distance of a window, seeing his spectral parents and one solitary tear coming out of his eye. And that's pretty damn dramatic. But more so, at the end of the issue, they brought Tim down to the Batcave and Dick is trying to make the point that he's Nightwing now. Dick just starts stripping. Pulls off his turtleneck and he just strips down to his Nightwing costume, which he's wearing under there in front of a 13-year-old boy in Alfred. It's like, you kept that costume on under there just so at some point or another you could pull this off. Wow. Circus folk. Tough but fair. I mean, on a certain level, I think wearing a superhero costume for no particular reason under your civilian clothes is kind of de rigueur in the DC universe. But you make a very good point, and he also did, to make his point, want to have visual aids. Like, there was no reason why that conversation needed to happen in the Batcave, except maybe, as Alfred was pointing out, you want to plant the seed in this kid's head that, like, hey, put on the Robin costume. You're the new Robin. But, yeah, he didn't need to be around all those props to give that speech. I think maybe for the first time, I am actually going to give this to Batman. It is maybe a tie with Two-Face, but the extent that he went to to commit to Two-Face's bit was so over the top with the, like, no, he needs $22 million at the Twin Towers Casino. I forget what the exact details were of it, but he went through so many different things to find the perfect thing that would just specifically appeal to Two-Face when he doesn't need to do Two-Face's thing. Two-Face wants to kill him. He could just send out a telegram saying, hey, Two-Face, I'll be at this place. Come kill me. He doesn't ostensibly have Two-Face's particular psychotic fixation on the number two. He could have just not gone along with it. But He just got so into the idea of putting on a show that he had to. And uh, that's why he is 
my president of the drama club this issue. I can absolutely see that. And then him brooding in the rain at the end, then the final page of the issue. It's like, you could have gone undercover, couldn't you, Bruce? Man, that guy loves to brood. He's so good at it. If there was an Olympic event of brooding. Wow. I mean, that would be like gymnastics. It would just be dominated by teenagers. Nobody would show up on the podium at the end, even though. They'd just be like, I don't even care. They'd show up ironically. Well, in addition to a president of the drama club, each issue of a Teen Titan adjacent comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of heroes, and a Beast Boy, the worst of heroes until Danny fucking Chase showed up. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? I really worked to not go with any kind of internal bias on this one. <laughs> because, you know, 30 years of Batman comics are going to develop a certain bias. However, while, listen, the, the Batman of this era, he's got some serious problems right now. And I can completely understand putting him as your Beast Boy. But I got to give this one to Bruce as my Aqualad, because he does, in the end, choose to go and save the kids. Yeah, he even re realizes himself, oh, right, I could have just called Commissioner Gordon. Right. But that's the thing. He has a moment of realization in the end. He actually is starting to come around when he realizes, oh, wait, I could have called Gordon. Oh, I called this kid Jason. I'm clearly in a bad place right now. Even if he doesn't know how to deal with it, the final panel, I can't hide from it any longer. I haven't been the same since Jason died. What do I do about it? What? Yeah. He's actually realizing, oh, I need to do something about this. And he hasn't quite reached the point where it's like, oh, I just need to endanger another child. So right. at least he's at this point thinking that, he could possibly do something healthy and how to deal with this. All right. All right. So for the reason of realizing that he fucked up real bad, you gave it to Batman. Because so many times Batman is written as a guy who never admits that. So here, okay, okay. He's, he's, he's coming to a, a separate piece with himself. Fair enough. Honestly, this was a wild category for me that I went back and forth on between the three heroes that appeared in it so many times for each position on it. I ended up coming up with Dick as my beast boy. Dick is my beast boy as well. Like, I love the, yeah, I'm not going to do that, but the way that he does introduce this kid into a perilous situation that was not healthy for him and was specifically not healthy for Jason Todd so recently. I liked him in the issue, but that was pretty darn fucked up. You hit the same notes that I had. Conversely, for my Aqualad, I went with Tim Drake. He did solid detective work. He displayed that rarest of superpowers, common sense and facial recognition, or I guess technically circus acrobatic recognition, which arguably, seeing as how good everyone is in the DC universe at flips, would be more difficult than facial recognition. And he did try a little bit to be sensitive about, hey, so I'm going to tell you a story about your parents dying. 
Sorry about this. I appreciated that. He definitely did make some missteps along the way. His uh, parasocial relationship with Batman and Robin is a little bit unsettling, but he's a good kid and I like him and I'm glad he's in this issue. I'm always happy to hear good things about Tim Drake. Well, it's interesting re reading this and revisiting mentally the Tim Drake character makes me realize how often in media portrayals since the introduction of Tim Drake, even when the character is named Dick Grayson, how often it seems like it is actually Tim Drake that is being portrayed in like Batman the Animated Series, or I think in that one it may have actually been Tim Drake, but in uh like the early Young Justice episodes, later it be they they do introduce a real Tim Drake, but for the first season, I think they were trying to keep it nebulous whether they were using any Teen Titans characters because there was already the Teen Titan cartoon at that time. And so we didn't even learn that his name was Dick until later on. I think it was like nearly the end of the first season before we got the reveal that it was Dick. But that whole time he was acting so much more like Tim Drake. Oh, I mean, he's he's a hacker. And that's yeah. Tim's thing. That is absolutely mm -hmm. Tim's thing. I always assumed it was Dick because he was a because well, he was a peer with Wally West and Speedy. So in my head, it was like, OK. But then again, Connor Kent is there, who is a peer with Tim and Calder, who was a new character at the time. So. What was your favorite panel in this comic? So that was hard for me because Jim Aparo is an artist that I have a deep and abiding love of his art. He was drawing Batman when I first started reading Batman and, mm -hmm. you know, have read so much of his stuff before and since those issues. But I could narrow it down to two. One, neither of which have Batman, interestingly enough. But one that is on page 14, and it's a pair of panels, but it's Tim flashing back to the nightmares he would have of the Graysons falling, and it's got these spirals, and it, it's got a real Hitchcock vertigo sort of vibe to it. These red and pink backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have the beveled edges of the panels that show that it's a flashback. Yeah, that one is really good. Tim superimposed eyes. I really like that, and I like what Aparo is doing with that there. It's a really interesting layout choice. You get another one a few pages earlier on page 11, where it is a different part of Tim's flashback when he first sees Batman. But the panels are laid out and are connected by this odd little line and are inset into one another in a way that makes it almost a flowchart. And it's really cool looking and really innovative layout. And that's one of the things I always loved about Jim Aparo. To me, the Jim Aparo Batman is the one that just looks right. I think if I did see a Batman when I was starting to read comics, there's a pretty good probability that it would have been a Jim Aparo one. He did the character for so long. But also, his Batman, I think, is the one that inspired the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez style guide Batman that was so prominent in the 80s. And there's something about that look of Batman that I really like, and it looks right here, and I like that. Which is why, like you, it is a little bit odd that neither of my favorite panels feature Batman. They're both ones that we've talked about already. 
We have the retro penguin look on page 15 that is the flashback to Tim watching television as a child. And I love that it is a really retro look because it is set within a flashback. And I mean, yeah, you did just get a circus murder, but it did seem like it was a more innocent time, like a more Silver Age type experience for him growing up, as opposed to the darker, more pulpy Batman that we get here. Uh, and I thought that was just really cool. My other favorite panel was, you talked about it before in describing how dramatic Dick was being, but the ghost parents flashback, where he sees this ethereal image of his parents superimposed on a window as he is uh, gazing off into the middle distance. It's just really nicely drawn. My other one is back on page five. It's actually right before that Urte panel you mentioned. But it's Tim seeing the inside of Wayne Manor for the first time, and his eyes are big, and it's just this sense of wonder. And it just makes me think, yeah, that's what I would have looked like if I was in his place <laughs> at that age. I would have been totally like, wow. Well, and that's why it makes so much sense for him to be the, like, point of view character for this book. And you get that, I think, even more so when he is taken down to the Bat Cave, and it's just like, holy shit, there's a giant penny, and there's a fucking dinosaur. Oh my god, all of the trophies. This is awesome. Totally. And you can see that maybe that is the recruitment pitch that Dick is subliminally giving him. Just like, all right, you want to be part of this? Check this out, kid. It's a cool technique that happens there. And yeah, you see it also when he is just like, wow, Wayne Manor. I am the only person besides you smart readers who are smart like me who knows this secret. So this is exciting for me the same way it would be exciting for you. Well, I think we should probably at this point take this party to the Bozone and uh, talk about which instance of one character calling another character a Bozo either literally or metaphorically, you think is worthy of note. There weren't a ton of insults in this issue, but I found one back on page three. As Batman is thinking about Two-Face, you're a brilliant man, Harvey. I can match that, but I can't duplicate the insane way your mind works. Yeah, getting in a little dig at him. Although... And I don't know if you think this or have noticed that in this comic, but I think that in some ways, Batman and Two-Face are two sides of a coin. Huh. You know, now that you mention it, I might have thought that at some point or another. I went with a different insult, which I don't think we were supposed to think of as an insult, but it is on page 14. Dick is talking to Tim Drake. Tim Drake has introduced himself not once but twice in this issue after having not introduced himself pointedly for two whole issues. Dick says, Jeff, what does this have to do with anything? I think Dick is doing a bit there, and I think it really works. Yeah. A little bit earlier, he does, I think, a similar thing where he is kind of giving Tim the business for being such a... I don't know, fly in the ointment, a, uh, a gadfly on society's tail, to uh, paraphrase, what was that, Socrates? Probably. 
But when he says to Alfred, well, I couldn't let a 12-year-old run around unattended, Tim is like, I'm 13. And I think calling a 13-year-old a 12-year-old is something that would really, really piss them off. And I also think that is something that Dick is doing on purpose. And uh, good for him. I think we should have ourselves a Battle of the Band Names. What band names were you able to find in the text of this comic? I was able to find two. One I think might be more of a a solo act, but still, I think it would work. Hmm. But the first one is definitely a band. During the Tim Drake flashback, when he first sees Batman, he describes him as dark thing that swooped. Oh. I think that there's definitely some death metal or some black metal going on there. I see what you're saying thematically, but when you have a name that's that long that has a grammatical structure to it like that, it sounds more like an indie band to me. Mm. You know, like a, I don't know, like a Godspeed You Black Emperor type of thing. Fair. Death Cab for Cutie. Yeah, yeah. I think that a dark thing that swooped is pretty good. I also had two of them. One of them has a very specific focus. They were maybe a somewhat cynically named band that just really wanted to play on the second stage at Bumbershoot, and that is why they are called Bumbershooter. Okay. It is the name that the Penguin apparently gave his exploding umbrella, which makes sense A Bumbershoot is an umbrella, but uh, Bumbershooter, I think, is maybe like what a high school band would just be like, well, you know, if we name ourselves this, they have to let us on the stage. And they're wrong. But I can, I can see that being a band that I would maybe enjoy listening to in a friend's basement. And then they can go and they can brood about it and get some practice for the brooding Olympics. Uh-huh. So that was my first one. Okay. My other choice, I think, is an 80s new wave band called Common Children. Oh, okay. I don't know. I just think there's something there with Common Children. It sounds both pretentious and marketable. And, like, mildly self-deprecating, but also denigrating of others as well. The kind of band that has a lot of songs about how terrible they are, but it's with the understanding that, but we're still better than you. You know, that kind of thing. I think that's Common Children. What was your other band name? My other is not a genre that I am terribly familiar with, but this I see as some sort of maybe country-western sort of vibe, Hawk Bridge. It's a guy, and he's, you know, got a guitar, and he's out there performing, and he's Hawk. Hawk Bridge. Okay, I can see that. Maybe that would be, like, a mix between that kind of a guy and, like, Hawkwind, the old band that Lemmy got his start in that was kind of hippie new-agey. So, like, maybe, like, it's a hippie New Age country. That would be interesting. Maybe New Wave covers of, like, Woody Guthrie. Okay. Let's say they do prog rock covers of Woody Guthrie. How about that? Yeah, I could totally see that. 
Okay, and not just Woody Guthrie, really. Like, they could do some uh, Phil Oaks covers in there, mix in some stuff like that. But uh, I, I think that sounds pretty good. Are you comfortable going with that as your choice, or is there one of the other ones that you like better? I like that. I think Hawk Bridge. Okay, let me just write that down. Give me one second. A couple of years ago, we did at my theater a play. It was a, a bio play of Woody Guthrie. So I heard a lot of Woody Guthrie, and a lot of it got stuck in my head. Understandable. Being out here near the Bonneville Dam, there's a big Woody Guthrie appreciation boom in the Pacific Northwest. Or as I call the Bonneville Power Dam, the Bonerville Power Dam, because <laughs> damn! Actually, I say that about the fish hatchery there, because there's a, a Bonneville fish hatchery there, or a Bonerville fish hatchery, because I do love a fucking fish hatchery. Put a good pun with a good fish hatchery, and that's gold. They have one of the world's uh, oldest sturgeons lives there. Oh. Big fella. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. I had a great time talking with you about this comic and learning a bit more about Batman and Tim Drake. If people wish to find you, and I think that they should, how would they go about doing that? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlaz1013, or you can follow both of my podcasts, Bat Chat with Matt and Will at Bat Chat Comics and WQ&A at WMQ Comics. New episodes of WMQ&A drop Tuesday mornings, and new episodes of Bat Chat drop on Thursday mornings. And you can also come to comicsxf.com, where I write a weekly Bat Chat column where Will and I do a roundup of three of that week's somehow Batman-related comics, I also review Saga, the Brian Vaughn, Fiona Staples book, with another one of our staff writers, Mark Turetsky, and I often cover the crowdfunding beat. So you can find me spending way too much time talking about comics over Comics XF. Excellent. I think people should do that. And also check out those shows. They're a lot of fun to listen to. If you'd like to get into touch with me and Corey, we can be reached at... Tighten up the defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on various places in the socials media, so you can look for us there. But if you can't find us there, there's one more place you can look, and that is deep inside your heart. We'll be there. We always have been. And you know what? So is Matt. Matt, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? I will probably be editing the new episode of Bat Chat because... Uh, it never ends, does no, it? No, it never does. Or reading the comics for either of those two podcasts. Because it <laughs> seems like all I do anymore is go to work, come home, and do stuff for podcasts. It's a vicious cycle. I will be in your hearts as well, and uh, I'm going to be reading that George Kennedy murder mystery book. I started it the other day. I'm only a few pages in, and uh, Dean Martin has already showed up. So, so far, so good. You'll have to loan me that in their heart once you're done. Oh, absolutely. Raquel Welsh is in it, too. I mean, she's already in people's hearts, I would assume. She made that good roller derby movie that I think was filmed in Portland. 
but may as well have been filmed in people's hearts for the amount of time that she spends in there. If you would like to support the show financially, you can check us out at patreon.com at patreon slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material that's up there. There's the uh, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's the Howard the Duck show that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. And there's a bunch of videos about comic books that I've made that are up there as a thank you for people for donating and making it possible for us to keep doing the show. So thank you for that. You can also uh, leave us a review in a place that a review can be left or, uh, you know, tell a friend or an enemy or I don't know. Opposite side of the coin to you. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Tell Queen Elizabeth if you're a loon right before you peck her right in the face. I, I, or, you know, you're, you're a bird. You know how to attack people. I'm not going not gonna to preach to the choir there. The moon can tell people, you know, chairface Chippendale style. Yeah. Display a, a message that's uh, on the moon that says, tighten up the defense. Enjoy, enjoy. And then under it in smaller letters, it just says, and fuck Dwight Eisenhower, <laughs> the moon's mortal enemy. Thank you again so much for joining us, Matt. I had a great time. And uh, until next week, I don't know, find the opposite side of your coin and marry or fight it. That's how coin collecting works, right? Yeah. Okay. Goodbye. Well, you've seen a lot of Tim Curry impressions in your line of work. Oh, yeah. The theater has, <laughs> has filled me with it. I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show, and I must have, but there was a health film we had to watch called Am I Normal that was about a kid going wanting to know if he had a normal-sized penis and asking random people what a good penis size was. And when he asked the zookeeper, the zookeeper said, well, son, you've come to the right place. I see a lot of penises in my line of work. Animal penises, that is. Well, son, I admire your candor. You've come to the right man for the answer. Let's face it, in this job, I see a lot of penises. Animals' penises, that is. Oh, my. That, that's up there with the one where Jonathan ba young Jonathan Banks was talking to a young lady about her period. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, he's they're bowling. It, huh. it is a thing. Who's Jonathan Banks? I feel like I should know that. Uh, Breaking Bad, uh, Community, bold, grumpy guy. Okay, got it. Wait, he was young at one point. I know. Johnny, do you notice anything different about me today? No. Are you sure? You got rouge on. So what's so different about you? I got my first period today. So what? <laughs>